0: I hope people care about office hours. They should because you're such a valuable resource in their education. (laughs) But um, a lot of students probably think, but I'd rather get a latte.
1: This is A New Angle, and I'm your host, Justin Angle, marketing professor at the University of Montana. This podcast is my chance to speak with cool people doing awesome things in and around the great state of Montana. We are proudly underwritten by First Security Bank and Blackfoot Communications. All right, welcome back. Thanks for tuning in today. Super excited about this episode. It's kind of a geeky episode again for me. Last week, we geeked out with Kevin Cohen on All Things Brand, and this week, I geek out with Michael Larson, on all things communications science. Micah is a communication scientist. She studies persuasion, and she's a practitioner of persuasion science through her firm, her consulting practice, APIS Communication Science. Uh, She was on an academic path and then stepped off that path to become a consultant to organizations and individuals trying to use the tools of psychology and persuasion and communications to better achieve the goals they're trying to achieve. So Super fun conversation with Micah. I admire her work. She's been a great collaborator and taught in our classes here at the College of Business. And I just appreciate having her in this community doing great work. So excited to bring you that conversation with Micah right now. All right. So we're here today with Micah Larson. Micah, thanks for coming
0: on the podcast. Thanks, Justin.
1: Yeah. So um, your official title is Persuasion Scientist. Is that right?
0: That's right. My brand. That's an awesome title. Thank you. And it's definitely... A good branding choice because it's something that makes people stop mid-conversation and ask about it. So it took me a while to really embrace the brand, but it's great.
1: Were you workshopping other particular titles or brands? Yeah,
0: Yeah. Um, because I'm not actually a scientist now. Mm -hmm. I am a business person, but I use science and apply it. Um, So I want to stay connected to the science world, but using it as a brand has been a new... Adventure now. My brand is Rogue Persuasion Scientist. So I
1: rogue. Yes, you added rogue to yes, your to your business card.
0: Yes, on the advice of some of my marketing friends because okay. it's it describes what I did. Yeah. I left academia, and I'm taking science and applying it to the real world.
1: Well, let's get into that before okay. we get too much into the banter of scientists and all that stuff. Yes. But so yes, yeah, so you have a background in academia. Your master's from Texas Christian University. Yes. In, communications, yeah. persuasion, and you tell us about all that. Like how did, how did you get into this this field of communication science?
0: I think I've always been a little bit obsessed with people and communication. Like I was the kid on the playground who would not play kickball, one, because I was bad at it, two, because I wanted to sit under the slide and like listen to people talk about their relationships and friendships. And so I've always had a brain that I think worked On communication puzzles and so when i had the opportunity to go to graduate school and study communication as my job i fell in love with that idea and amidst the studying of communication i found persuasion science or as we call it social influence and it really is the science of how we change people's attitudes and get them to buy in right so um i made that my career
1: but you know the 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 rogue piece is interesting (laughs) as part of the brand because I mean, you tell us about it. Like when you were a student in Texas at a Christian university, you were studying Sex. how to, yeah, how to get people <laughs> to use condoms or something like that. Yeah, recount that that whole piece.
0: Okay, yeah, I think Rogue reflects me as well because yeah,
1: it's definitely the brand.
0: Yeah, it is. Um, and a reason why I feel comfortable with it is because I kind of marched down to Texas Christian University, flying my flag of, did, I don't sorry, care. Where did you
1: do undergrad and where'd you grow up? Um, University of Missouri.
0: Okay. So I grew up in St. Louis. Um, so
1: not exactly like, you know, East Coast, West Coast, liberal bastion sort of place. I mean, you were, you were in the heartland.
0: Yeah, but I was raised by, um, my mom's a German immigrant and my okay. dad had come from art school in Pasadena, California. And so oh, they are like there you go. very, yeah, they're very international progressive people. And so when I, you know, um, I marched down to Texas and decided I wanted to study evolution and sex and persuasion at TCU, <laughs> and I immediately became unpopular.
1: <laughs> right, right. How did you get admitted? What, what was the story you used to get admitted?
0: Um, that was, I guess, um, before they found out how outspoken I was. Right, right. Yes. They
1: thought Micah was a man's name?
0: Well, that actually has happened to me before I um, was recruited for a men's cross-country team in high school because I thought it was a man. So it wouldn't have been the first time. (laughs) Yeah, maybe it was the biblical name that threw them off my scent. But, um, yeah, so going rogue in one way was being at TCU and studying something that was um, kind of flew in the face of what a lot of people's beliefs there were even in the department. But rogue also meant – I was applying to Ph.D. programs and then took a left turn and decided I'm going to be an entrepreneur instead.
1: Well, and, you know, for, for the listener who might not understand kind of that world. I mean, when you're a, when you're a graduate student, you're being invested in by faculty members, by an institution in order so that you will go get an academic job and sort of promote the level, the legacy of that institution. I mean, that's the path. And almost explicitly you know when a graduate student's taken under your wing as a professor you sort of see that person as oh yeah this person's going to be free labor for me for a long time so to then pivot and go off on your own and not down the academic path yeah that takes a lot of guts
0: yeah it really did um and i think i offended some sure. people However, I was extraordinarily lucky that my mentor didn't care whether I went into the private sector or stayed in education. Um, He actually used to work here, Adam Richards. Now he's an award-winning persuasion scientist and um, amazing man. And he taught me a lot. Um, And he just encouraged me to pursue whatever made me happy, whether it was research or Mm -hmm. applying it in the real world. And he used to work at the National Institute of Health. So he kind of um, had been out of academia before.
1: Yeah. So, okay. So you're doing this study, you know, on on sex and condoms or actually let's walk us through. What was <laughs> your thesis project?
0: Um, so obviously working on a college campus, people know that sexually transmitted diseases can be a rampant issue and become a larger health public health Crisis. Sure. So, um, you know, as our in our best interest to figure out how can we persuade people to adopt really healthy sex behaviors on college campuses. So, as a persuasion scientist, my job was to figure out what kind of language works best to mm-hmm. persuade college students to talk to each other before they have sex about, you know, um, I've been tested, I should use a condom, um, having those really important facts straight before jumping in the sack, so to speak. So, uh, Adam and I studied. What kind of language sh- should we use to get people to talk to each other before having sex? But what kind of language actually makes them do the opposite mm. as well? So, we know from persuasion science that if we use really forceful language, people will actually end up doing the exact opposite. Yeah, of what yeah. We're reactants, like. right? reactants. And we'll get into all these things, yeah. but yes. Yeah, so um, we studied inoculation or how we can protect people from being persuaded by their own anger and kind of having that boomerang effect. Yeah.
1: Yeah. We'll get into inoculation. That's kind of a complicated topic. It's complicated. Um, Yeah. (laughs) But so you do this study and at what point are you thinking, okay, I want to go out on my own and kind of be a practitioner of the, of these tools?
0: Yeah. It was because, um, I was really poor. And
1: yeah, yeah, that that's an important factor.
0: <laughs> yeah, you know, anyone who's been in grad school knows it's kind of like a ramen noodles type of time. Um, and her husband,
1: he was in medical school at the time, is that? Or what? what yeah,
0: we were just dating. Um, yeah. He was in med school, graduating. Um, and an-
1: another sort of uh, delayed path to yes, income. Long yes. Yeah. Delayed path. To
0: oh my income. gosh. Yeah, we're still on it. Um <laughs> Uh, so I actually got, um, a lot of people, graduate students take out loans to kind of pay the bills, but I didn't have the option so much. So I instead got a job in the Texas House of Representatives as a director of communications.
1: You leave TCU and, and you go working for a congresswoman from Texas, right? Yeah. State representative.
0: State representative, Nicole Collier of district 95. Yes. So it was an amazing opportunity to be, help craft her message and be persuasive from the Texas House perspective.
1: Right. And so how kind of welcoming were they of your sort of rogue, emerging rogue persuasion scientist brand?
0: So that was before I had the brand, but (laughs) it definitely um, planted the seed in my mind because they were super open to it and they were excited to have someone who came from not a um, a, pol- a political standpoint, yeah, but yeah. a communication science standpoint. And we're very open-minded to that. And it ended up paying off because people started to try to poach me from her office hmm. um, because I was doing a good job, which right. was super gratifying. <laughs>
1: right. Good job in terms of crafting messages that were influential, designing outreach campaigns that were moving voters' minds. Is that kind yeah. of how, how your performance was looked at?
0: Yeah. I actually think my wheelhouse was speech writing. Okay. okay. Um, which is extremely powerful to, you know, she gets up um, on the, the steps of the Texas House in uh, Austin and speaks to crowds of hundreds to thousands of people about women's rights. Yeah. And so it's yeah. my job to be the voice there and um, get people on board, not just to vote, but to get invested in, in the process of vote of um, the civic process and get invested in Texas and how politics touch their lives and um, tell stories and so that was like creative and science um, skills m- married together, and it was remarkable. But my first task ever she gave me was to write a comedy roast. Interesting. And that was terrifying because comedy is really hard. It is hard. And, and I think people uh,
1: think it's easy, but it's exceedingly hard.
0: Oh yeah, it was definitely the hardest job I ever had there. Um, it was the roast of a like a hundred year old black Republican. Oh,
1: geez, yeah. That's A little fraught,
0: it, it yeah. She, it went over great. I wasn't actually at, invited to the event, but um, I sweated a lot, I think, when I was to write it. <laughs> sure, so you
1: get thrown to the wolves, you kind of have to be innovative, creative, crafty, prove your worth, and then, yeah, you know, at what point are you thinking, okay, I'm gonna take this show independent and do my own thing?
0: Um, I actually was kind of in the ends of my master's program, and it was time for me to make a decision what am I gonna do um threw away my PhD applications and picked up an application for the CIA because I wanted to be a um an a data data analyst sure and started going through the interview process and made it through a couple steps there um but I come from an entrepreneurial family and uh something really struck me about the independence that I would get from leading my own Circus, like you said, so to speak. Like, I, um, having only me to check in when I make my own decisions, like having complete freedom and there's so much responsibility, but um, I had the naivety and like somewhat ignorance about what it takes to run a business. Mm-hmm. That's necessary to yeah. kind of jump Pro- on. I
1: mean, probably some amount of that naivete is, is necessary to dive in, right? And take that yes, chance. Cause absolutely. I think if you if, you're, if you had all the awareness of how hard it is, people would probably not do it.
0: Yeah. Yes. And I, we had an event occur at when I was working in the house, um, there was a woman in her 20s who was, um, she suddenly died and her ru- was rushed to the hospital in our district. And um, her family was saying, can we please take her off life support? And the hospital said, we can't because she's pregnant. So they were kind of keeping her um, as an incubator for this baby. And the law said one thing, the family wanted another. Mm-hmm. And um, part of my job was to write a statement about how to persuade people in one direction or the other oh, about this really sensitive issue, and that's when I started to really grasp how I was applying—I can apply persuasion science to the real world and swing people's minds one way or the other. Um, Not—I didn't really necessarily want to work on that topic, but I started to see how persuasion can make the world a better place yeah. if we apply it in the right spot. So let's fast
1: forward a bit. So now you're in Missoula. And your company, Apis Communication Science, um, that's exactly what you do. You, you work with individuals, you work with companies. Tell us about Apis and, and 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 the work that you do.
0: Yeah, so I wanted to take something that's people are complicated. Persuasion can be complicated. There are a lot of factors that it, to that it takes to change people's attitudes and get them to buy in because our brains are complicated, mm-hmm. but we can all, if we kind of look back at how the brain is put together and what makes people make decisions, we can kind of create a plan for how to persuade people. And that's what I wanted to do. That's what I want to give to people who run nonprofits and own businesses and do cool projects in the world. I want to give them the To two, here's like the roadmap to persuading sure. people, getting them to buy in. That's what APIS does. So, I um, was living in Wyoming a few years ago and just had one of those lightning bolt moments when I thought, how am I ever going to make it easy for people to learn how to persuade? Build an algorithm. Duh. Hmm. So I built the APIS algorithm um, starting by drawing out on huge sheets of paper in my dining room and eventually turn it into code and now it's on my website. So basically the algorithm gathers information about a person... Um, the person or people that they would like to persuade, what they would like to persuade them to do. For example, um, something I used to be interested in researching is organ donation. So um, maybe someone from a health field wants to persuade the public to become organ donors and sign the back of their licenses. How would they do that? What are the best ways to go about that? The algorithm predicts the best tactics to persuade people.
1: So can we walk through like a just a hypothetical hypothetical example, but one that might have some relevance, at yeah. least to me, so... Um, You know, in some ways I view class as a, um, and I'm stealing this pithy phrase from a friend of the pod, Bryce Ward, but sometimes I view class as an advertisement for office hours. Oh. That I really want students to come to office hours. Yet many students, either they have no interest, they don't have, don't care to come meet me, or they don't have time or they're unmotivated or they don't see the value in it. So if I want to persuade students to come to office hours, um, how would we do that? Like how, how okay, I'm going to go to your website. I'm going to pull up your algorithm and, and how's that all work?
0: Yeah. Great question. So it's pretty simple. The algorithm is the, is a quiz format. Now it's on the landing page of my website. And so all it does is ask you a series of yes or no questions about okay. yourself.
1: Okay. So what, can we role play that? Like, what would you, what would, you, if you're the algorithm, which you kind of are, Yeah. what would you ask?
0: Okay. So the first questions are, uh, who's your target? So who are, is the person or people you'd like to persuade. It's obviously your students. students yeah. um, what is your request? So what is it that you'd like them to do?
1: Come to office hours.
0: Okay. So um, one of the most important first questions, is it a group... Is it one person? So obviously, it's a specific group of people. And then the algorithm starts kind of down a path of asking a lot of questions of the characteristics of your students and what Mm. their motivations are. Um, And then a lot of characteristics of you, which is where it gets super interesting because you're a male, obviously. um, And that determines what kind of language you should best use to persuade them, um, what kind of authority you have, what you look like, um, what mode of communication are you using? Is it face-to-face are you writing an email sure is this a social media request um there are can be up to 120 questions and the reason is because the algorithm wants to be smart and it wants to gather as much information about this process as possible to give you the most personalized recommendations
1: okay okay so say you know yes to mail and in-person class and verbal communication um Okay, how do I make students come to office hours?
0: Okay, so yeah, <laughs> well, let's go back to something I mentioned earlier, which is the intensity of the language that we should okay. use. Yeah, yeah. So um, we know that in general, when we use a really intense, aggressive language, it can get people, um, it can actually make them do the opposite of what we want. So that's
1: reactants. React, right? psychological
0: yes. reactants. That's when our brains are telling us, no, we need to protect our ability to make choices. So, rebel and reject and do the opposite. Well, your,
1: your sense of freedom and agency is threatened yeah. and you react against that.
0: Yeah, right? because it's beneficial for us to have agency and be able to make our own choices. Absolutely. It helps us survive. So it's a, a survival mechanism. So when we want to persuade people, we want to get them to buy in but not risk that reactance. But we do know that males that we find very authoritative and f- physically attractive can use... Um more intense language and can still be viewed as persuasive. So they're kind of there's an asterisk there.
1: Okay. Is that is that part of that concept of bandwidth I've heard you talk yes. about? That that you know people that fulfill those characteristics have a, a broader bandwidth. I mean the range of words and actions they can use to communicate is, is more permissible? Yes, exactly.
0: Broader? Yeah. Bandwidth is super interesting, and it's a really great way to inform us and help us understand, well, how can I be persuasive? Um, Bandwidth is basically how much freedom you have and what you can say before you start to violate other people's expectations of you. Because we all walk around with expectations preset about how people should speak to us based on what they look like. You know, are their gender, their authority, their race, even their age? So we all... Have expectations about how our professors should speak to us and you know, our stewardesses on the airplane. And once we start to negatively violate those expectations and we go outside of our bandwidth, then we become less persuasive. Okay. So, in order to be per- more persuasive, we can either act within our bandwidth or we can expand that bandwidth by helping people believe that we are more authoritative, we have a lot of credibility, and that we're very trustworthy.
1: Yeah, I mean, as you're talking about this, I'm thinking of Donald Trump.
0: <laughs> I know people ask I mean, me about him a lot. Yeah, I mean, why not? <laughs> like,
1: he, he sort of, the facts, pro- or the, the, I think the record would show that he's proven to have far more bandwidth than one might initially expect.
0: Yes. Maybe. I think, Am
1: I applying the wrong concept there?
0: Well, I think it's actually less about his bandwidth, and he uses so much emotion. Mm. So he's using the right tactic to appeal to his target audience. Okay. My understanding of Donald Trump is that the people to whom he is speaking um, are very much persuaded by emotional appeals. Yeah. And he does use like really emotional language, mm-hmm. a lot of fear. Um, a lot of times fear makes um, most people reject and rebel and run away, but fear is very persuasive to his target audience.
1: Right. We could go down a dangerous rabbit hole we here. Could. So so probably want to, probably want to press pause there and yeah. go back to something <laughs> As inane and as, um, as boring as office hours, right? Right,
0: yeah, office hours. Does
1: anybody care about office hours? Maybe that's the whole problem. Like, I'm, I'm trying to get people to care about it.
0: I hope people care about office hours. They should because you're such a valuable resource in their education. <laughs> sure. But um, a lot of students probably think, but I'd rather get a latte. A
1: New Angle is underwritten by First Security Bank and Blackfoot Communications, two cool companies doing awesome things all over Montana. Hi, this is Jeff Meese, media technician at the College of Business, and you're listening to A New Angle. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Although, you know, drum coffee, friend of the pod, they can come to office hours and get a latte.
0: No kidding. You know?
1: Maybe I need to just advertise that.
0: Yeah. Actually. Well, you know, one thing that's really persuasive is incentives. So this is yes. actually something I love yes. to talk to my clients about. So we tend to think that um, we can persuade people really well with that fear I was just talking about, with negative emotions and threats. However, research demonstrates that in most cases we're better persuaders when we offer people an incentive. Sure. So it's like the carrot and the stick. Yep. We end up using the stick a lot. If you look at a lot of ads and PSAs, like we're you see a lot of sticks, a lot of threats. Carrots work better because um, there are two types of incentives, internal incentives. So those things that give us like satisfaction and acknowledgement and recognition and feeling good about ourselves, those tend to work to persuade people in the long term. And then there's external uh, incentives. So those are like rewards like a latte or a $100 gift card or a new car or something. And those work really well to get people to buy in in the Mm -hmm. short term.
1: Yeah, and and the same thing can be framed in multiple ways too. So, you know, to the office hours example, and I'll, let's close that that example right with this because probably nobody in the nobody listening except for me cares about it. I'm sure. Well, I do. Okay. Well, and <laughs> of two, um, but yeah. So so yeah. So coming for an office hour visit is five percent of your grade, and if it's framed and inter- if, if it's framed punitively, like hey, you have to come to office hours. It's five percent of your grade. Yeah. That's kind of a non-starter. Um, But if you frame it like, well, do you want 100% on an assignment that's 5% of your grade? Like, do you want five points toward the 100 points for this class to show up?
0: Yeah. Yeah. I think that you could layer a lot of easy tactics for this one example. Like, for example, social proof. So that's evidence that we give. Right,
1: that it's actually valuable.
0: Yeah. Or that other people have bought into this request. Right. So uh, this is one of the easiest examples that we um, use, like, when we give people we uh, showcase our testimonials. Um, A friend of mine, Mallory Oteriano, she owns a website called Kind Apparel and she Mm -hmm. does something really cool on her website that gives people social proof. I don't know if she was aware of this, but I actually told her about it today. Uh, So when you're cruising her website, looking at her amazing um, women's sportswear, a little pop-up will come up in the left-hand corner of the website that says, um, someone just bought this dress. Yeah. And so social proof is when we give people evidence that others have bought into our requests. And mm-hmm. so in your office hours example, like keeping a public list of people who have come to office hours and gotten that 5% of their grade, that's really persuasive. We're ten- we tend to be persuaded by the herd. We want to go with what the herd is yeah. doing.
1: Yeah. To a certain extent though.
0: Think- yeah, because we want to be unique right? and we want to be novel, but um, that's a conscious Decision, when we make a lot of decisions subconsciously, oh, because okay. our brains are built to be really efficient. And so, if we were to walk around and really think critically about every single decision we made about taking the elevator versus the stairs, or where to park, or should I get two um, percent or skim? Uh, our our brains would be overloaded. So we make a lot of decisions like turning left or right subconsciously, and so that's where social proof persuades us in that kind of subconscious sure. realm. Once we start making conscious decisions, then that's when we think, well, I wanna be novel I want to be different and differentiate myself. Mm-hmm. So they're both persuasive in different contexts.
1: Right. I just I mean I'm thinking of optimal distinctiveness theory, right? And so yeah, I think that's Marilyn Brewer. And and you know, each one of us has this notion of what the optimal level of distinction we should achieve. Some yeah. people fall hurt herd all the time and they're totally comfortable in that. Other people Rejected all the time and there's everything in between. And so what are some of those, uh, you know, something I hadn't thought of or or realized was the falling of the herd piece is automatic in many ways. And then the rejection of the herd is, is a conscious decision. Mm -hmm. So what are some of the things that turn that on and off that, that if I'm a herd follower, what are, what are some switches that would, I would turn on my conscious awareness so that I would think, no, I'm going to actively reject the herd here. Does that question make sense?
0: Yeah. So here's what I know about the sameness versus differentness kind of mm-hmm. problem is that it follows our pattern of behavior follows what's called an inverted U shape. And you know, that is kind of like sure. if you turn the letter U upside down. So on one side of this, you is follow the herd all the time. The other side is do our own thing all the time. We kind of like, the most um, attractive, desirable place to be is right in the middle, and that's why that top of the U is so high because Mm -hmm. most people want to fit in to a large degree and make a a lot of automatic decisions and not stick out too much. But when it comes to certain um, factors that probably have a lot of relevance and meaning, they want to be distinct and differentiate themselves and be really novel. If we think about it evolutionarily, which to me – is how we explain most of human behavior is that it's very beneficial to us to be part of a group and be viewed as part of a group. We get protection and resources and really pivotal relationships from our social group. However, we can attract more attention if we're a little bit unique. So it doesn't benefit us to be an extreme either way. So we have to kind of ride that middle. And it's kind of like, I think when we're trying to decide which part of the U shape to be on, it's like, should I buy those shoes or will people think that I'm super weird? Should I, that's one moment where we're struggling with what yeah. side of the U yeah. shapes to be on. Is this haircut too weird or should I do something more low-key?
1: Sure. Okay. Did so, I answer your question? I think so. I think so. It was different enough. Let's put it that way.
0: Okay. <laughs> I, I kind of hit the joke there. <laughs> yeah. Yeah.
1: Um, okay. So you've got this algorithm. I mean, what are some of? What's a typical client that comes your way and needs your help? And either, either through the algorithm or through an in person engagement, because you do so many different things. I mean, if you go to Micah's uh, Facebook page or YouTube page, I mean, she's got these awesome videos, tons of writing, blogging. Just a, your site and your presence online is such a wealth of valuable information. Thank so you. What. And people find you through that content, but what are, they, what are they kind of looking to do often?
0: My clients are people who tend to be working on marketing and sales. Okay. Um, especially marketing. Okay, because you are, <laughs> you're a marketing expert. So um, there are so many moving parts in a marketing campaign, and it takes a lot to make something successful. Mm-hmm. And so for someone who that's not even their primary job and they run a business or, you know, they don't come from the world of marketing, it can be very difficult, and we're always trying to find um, something that will put us ahead of the curve and help us beat our competition. And so people who are really savvy and, um, really like professional development and want to enhance their skills and do marketing those are my clients especially for mid-level businesses um sales to some extent but it tends to be people who are into marketing strategy okay because i'm marketing technology i'm a new way to look at marketing yeah yeah and persuasion isn't sales or marketing it's like an add-on it's like um a way to super power boost all of that
1: Super power boost. That's pretty good.
0: But I like to work with people who are doing some kind of socially conscious projects. Yeah, Um, I
1: mean, that's a thread that comes out in your work. You sort of, you know, and that's a criticism of marketing that I sort of try to grapple with all the time. Is like, do we want to sell more pieces of plastic that are going to end up in a landfill to people that don't need them or can't afford them? Like, no, actually, we want to maybe help people make decisions that are better for them and their own welfare and the welfare of their families and maybe the good of the planet all those things. So you're trying to maybe affect some positive ends on those dimensions.
0: Yeah. Um, I think of my friend Blake Nicolazzo when I think of this because she owns a marketing firm and she really chooses, is picky about her clients. She wants to work with socially conscious brands who are, Mm -hmm. you know, um, she cares about grizzly bears and um, reducing plastic and that's how she chooses her clients. And I'm similar. um, I choose carefully who I work one-on-one with. And in Missoula, I'm lucky because there's a wealth of people who have amazing ideas in an entrepreneurial setting.
1: So somebody comes to you and you have this notion of, okay, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm putting a lot of effort and resources into my marketing, whatever. It's not quite getting there. Or I don't know how to measure it. Or, like, what's how do you add that secret sauce to what they're doing?
0: Persuasion's great because it's super subtle. Yeah. Um, It's not a marketing campaign, it's the little nuances that we add on to our sales, our marketing, our emails, our conversations, our ads, our Facebook posts that get people to buy in. So, Let's
1: give an example. Like what's an example of a campaign that was just flat that you can give a subtle twist to, or all of a sudden you're getting some traction.
0: I have a client who works in an anti-gun violence area. Okay. A lot of, there's a, they're in a difficult position because they have the responsibility they feel when there's a, gun violence related incident to kind of make a statement about that. Sure. And they don't sell guns, but they're kind of in the business of reducing gun violence. But it's really tricky to put out a statement that isn't like thoughts and prayers mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. and doesn't turn people off, but gets them inspired. And and every time we have like a school shooting or um, all these terrible incidents that we've had in the last few years, especially, we turn to, well, what's the solution? What's the solution? Right. I'm not going to share the name of this client um, to protect their privacy, but um, I really enjoy working with them on those specific types of projects because it's easy to fall flat when you're just kind of putting out a statement saying, you know, thoughts and prayers, and we want to um, keep our – attention on the family and we feel for those who have been affected but you also want people to buy into a solution that yeah, can fix
1: that right so like you've got this tent right and and you can make the people in your tent more agitated more active more bought in but you can also expand the tent and yeah some expansion of the tent and problems like these issues like these kind of needs to be happening
0: yes and so i get to help them make these small changes in the statements they're putting out that yeah. grabs people and brings them in, into their tent and um get the public to find a solution to gun violence without it feeling like a sales pitch, because it's not, it's an appeal to people to let's do the right thing. And persuasion doesn't feel like selling when you're persuaded. You don't know that it's happened.
1: Right. Right. Okay. So that kind of leads me to this next line of inquiries. And I know we can't, you know, you've got sort of client privacy issues, so we can't like sort of break down real world examples in a way, But, (laughs) but maybe we can pick your brain on, you know, you're, you're schooled in the, I don't want to say dark arts but, <laughs> but this 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 toolkit of persuasion, so what are kind of like the top five things that that we as parents as educators as spouses as you know friends whatever children what should we be sort of aware of as far as our powers to influence when we want to, but also um maybe. Red flags that we should be aware of when people are trying to persuade us.
0: Yeah. Okay. So a red flag is when you're in a sales situation with someone, or you think that you might be, um, someone might want you to get out your credit card for some reason. Be aware if you feel like you start to like them a lot more than you think you should for the amount of time you've known them. Interesting. Because good persuaders enhance liking. So actually, liking liking of a person. Vastly, even more than how much we like their product yeah. is the best predictor of yeah. whether it's, people buy it. It's in. got
1: nothing to do with whether I want the car no. or need the car, right? No. Just if I like the salesperson, yeah,
0: like relationship marketing, right? So good persuaders are, um, can read their target and create similarities and associations okay. and enhance Pattern their liking matching of some kind. Yeah, synchronizing with them sometimes. Yeah, and um, so if, like, for example, you're going to looking at a car. And you start, you are like, at the end of, you know, 20 minutes, you're like, ah, I could be buddy. I could go get a beer with this yeah, salesman. Yeah. You're being persuaded. Interesting. Yeah. And that's like a car salesman is an overused example. Of course. Of course. Yeah. It's an easy
1: one to use <laughs> yeah. but for, for many reasons. Yeah.
0: Not to give car salesmen a bad name. Like they no. do a good job. They can be very persuasive. Oh,
1: many of us need cars.
0: Yeah. So that's yeah. a red flag. But, um.
1: So liking So if you feel yourself liking the person in inordinate amounts. So One. Um, that's not a thought that occurs to many of us Mm -mm. at any given time. So maybe that's just the rule is like, pay attention to why you're liking this person. And if it's substantiated by, you know, more than 20 minutes of experience.
0: Yeah. And sometimes a feeling of obligation that we ignore. Um, like a lot of the persuasion tactics that I teach motivate people based on, um, there are natural desire to want to keep our relationships balanced and reciprocate. Sure, reciprocity, yes. Yeah, exactly. Um, there are a lot of different reciprocity tactics, but sometimes when you have that like gnawing little feeling of, I feel obligated yeah. to give or buy in, you're being persuaded. Red flag. And I'm doing something which is unusual, which is for telling you how to protect yourself against persuasion, but I think that's ethical.
1: Yeah, I think so.
0: Too. Just mm. as ethical as my job is to help. Um, The companies I believe in persuade other people.
1: Well, it's about making better choices, right? Yeah. And and there's people trying to persuade us to do all kinds of things. All the time. Yeah.
0: Um, And it is, like you said, a dark art. People do view it that way. It's not coercion. So when you persuade people, the targets always have the option to say no. And it's not forceful. And persuasion is never like a hard sell or hard close. Mm -hmm. My view is that hard sell and hard closing is ineffective in the long term and unethical because you're using pressure tactics. And I think it's, there's a more efficient and effective way to get people to say yes while allowing them their free will, not making them uncomfortable Mm -hmm. and being smarter, which is using persuasion.
1: Yeah. So we went over liking, we went over reciprocity, consent. Um, What are some other kind of tools in the kit?
0: Did you want to talk about inoculation?
1: Well, I think are we are we ready? I'd like to get to <laughs> inoculation. I've been just been trying to build us yeah. to that because it's 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 a complicated concept.
0: Yeah. Um,
1: I mean, the the concept people get intuitively, like from from sort of you know being given vaccines. Yeah. But walk us through what inoculation and in communications is.
0: Okay. So it is possible to protect people and prevent them from being persuaded in the future. So it's kind of like giving someone's brain a flu shot against future persuasion. So we we're just talking about protecting yourself from persuasion. This is a way to protect other people from future persuasion. So when would we use this? Um, maybe if we want to um, keep a group of people from being persuaded in the future that they should give in to peer pressure and drink a lot or binge drinking or something. Sure. Um,
1: okay, so at some point in the future, my daughters are going to be... I say future. I hope future. Um, (laughs) They're little. uh, Yeah, seven and nine, (laughs) almost nine, Um, you know. But yeah, at some point in the future, they're going to be faced with peer pressure-oriented decisions. Come, come to this party, drink this, drink this, do this. So yes, that instant, maybe we can build around this example.
0: Yes. Okay, so you don't want your daughters to be peer pressured into drinking. What you want to do is inoculate them in three steps. So the first is work, we kind of think about the metaphor of the flu shot. And so we know inoculations work based on decades and decades of research that you give someone essentially very, and this is very simplified, but a little tiny bit of an illness. And so their body builds up a resistance to it. And so when you're you come in conf- contact with the full-blown version of it, then your body's prepared to fight it off. So in inoculation theory, we give someone a tiny little bit of an argument so that they're, they build up resistance to it.
1: Okay, hey, to be clear, of an argument, I'm not giving my daughters little sips of booze. No, no, no. Yeah, no, yeah. no, no, no.
0: This is just talking. Okay. No drinking. Okay. <laughs> yeah, not alcohol resistance, just persuasion resistance. So... You're giving someone a tiny little bit of persuasion so that later on when someone does come and full on tries to persuade them to drink, then they're going to be prepared to fight it off.
1: So what's an example of the the bit of an argument, like, you know, wordsmith for me, what I would say to them.
0: Okay. So it's really easy to do in a conversation and they won't know that they're being persuaded necessarily. So you can say something like, okay, in the future, someone might say something to you that sounds like this. Hey, well, Justin, tell me what you think it sounds like to be peer pressured into drinking what do i think it yeah. sounds like
1: you know hey party party going on down at the uh i don't know mine shaft or whatever i don't know yeah, the mine shaft. who knows I mean, that sounds awesome go? um upon sentinel yeah night, huh?
0: okay yeah absolutely um so someone in the future someone might say something that sounds like hey it's no big deal everybody here's drinking like just you know just have a couple like we can call you an uber whatever And so then you're giving them that little bit of persuasion and what it would sound like. But then the next step is you give them a script to fight against that persuasion. Okay.
1: So that's step two is the script. Step two.
0: Yeah. So first, step one is the threat. So that's what your threat message is. You warn them. And then give them what the threat message will sound like. And then the next step is to give them something that's called the refutational preemption. So that's a long word that just says you're giving them basically a script and something to help them bolster okay. their attitudes so they won't be persuaded. And so then you give them some kind of information or something to fight back with and say, but you know, binge drinking is actually really bad for your body. And this is what you might say to a nine-year-old or a seven-year-old. Um, is that, you know, um, when you drink a lot of alcohol, it can be really bad for your body and it can make you, you know, do things that make bad um, choices. Yeah. Make bad that's, choices. That's what we say. Yeah. I'm not a parent yet. So you, would yeah. <laughs>
1: you have learned this stuff fast.
0: I know I'm about to have a baby. So yeah, I, I got to speed up my learning. Um, so essentially you've gone through these three steps, warned your daughter that she might be persuaded, given her the threat message, and then you've given her a refutational preemption. And so you can say some things to prepare her to kind of bolster her attitudes about drinking and then you've inoculated her. And so there've been a lot of studies, even the long-term studies on inoculation. So middle school kids, inoculating them against smoking uh-huh. cigarettes, it's been effective. Mm-hmm. Very um, effective. Yeah. I use inoculation theory in my research. So inoculating people against the reactants, which is a whole um, much more complicated meta persuasion thing. That's we, episode two. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It's fascinating. Not only can we persuade people, but we can persuade them not to be persuaded.
1: Hmm. That's uh, that's very meta. It is. To get my head around But that.
0: you know what is important to know is that it's my job to know those complicated things. My job is to make it super easy for other people to do it. And I give instructions for how to persuade in you know five minutes. So you don't have to know how to inoculate people. I'll teach you.
1: So maybe that's a great way to wrap this up, Micah, is how can people sort of, one, if they found this stuff interesting, how can they learn more about it? But more specifically, how can they learn more about your work and, and, and get your help if they need it?
0: Yeah, so I have a YouTube channel where you can watch me as Micah Larson. Um,
1: L-A-R-S-E-N.
0: L-A-R-S-E-N, as my husband would say, E-N, like the Danish people. So, um, yeah, I put up a lot of free YouTube videos because I think this is information people should use. Mm -hmm. However, where you're really going to learn how to be persuasive in about five minutes is on my website. So there's kind of three steps to using my persuasion pollination program. Get on the APIS website take the free APIS quiz and that's where you learn which tactics you should be using to get people to buy in to your request. Then you can subscribe to my content. So so I um, my feature videos are about 5 minutes long and they teach you how to use persuasion tactics and how you should apply them in your real life. So I have dozens and dozens of tactics, and they're all meant to be used, you know in marketing, in your emails, in your conversations, your sales, et cetera. They can be widely applied. And um from there, I also have a closed Facebook group, and I'm actually starting really cool webinars. Um okay. I think by the time this airs, I will have one the next week. So awesome. my first Free persuasion webinar is January 22nd at 6 p.m. It's going to be a Zoom conference. And so I'm inviting people to listen in and I'm going to give persuasion advice and answer questions. And I can't wait to share.
1: Uh, where's that going to be? Or, you know, I, well, where? Um, <laughs> how do people sort of log into that and
0: yeah, consume it? Vi- yeah, visit my Facebook page or send me an email via my website. There's okay. a contact page awesome. on there and I'll send you the link. Um, my whole idea is that persuasion is complicated, but it doesn't have to be complicated for you because I can teach you how to be persuasive in at least one way in about five minutes. So I it's my job to break it down.
1: Yeah. Well, you're doing awesome work, important work. We appreciate it. Thanks for coming on and sharing a little bit of your wisdom. And uh, yeah, I encourage people to just get out there and, and take a look at what's going on at APIS and uh, with what Mike is doing. Thank you, Mike.
0: Thank you, Justin. It's an honor. Thanks.
1: All right, hope you enjoyed that conversation with Micah as much as I did. Check out her YouTube channel. Just Google APIS Communication Science, and you'll find it. Awesome content, useful content coming out on a pretty regular basis. Okay, next week, Andrew Seligson and Andrea Vernon. Andrew is the president of Campus Compact, a nationwide organization dedicated to creating service learning opportunities on college campuses. And Andrea is the director of the Montana chapter of Campus Compact. And I think they actually call it the Montana Compact, and we get into that in the interview. So anyway, excited to bring them to you next week. Remember that A New Angle was brought to you by CED, Consolidated Electrical Distributors. By now, you've been listening long enough to know that these guys are big and that they sell pretty much everything electrical you would ever need. But you might not know that they hire a ton of University of Montana students. If you want to learn more about careers at CED, visit cedcareers.com. It's a great website name. Before we go, I want to thank some important peeps. Kamsar, Elizabeth Willie, interns, Aspen Runkle, Mason Dow, and Max Gibson. Huge thanks to VTO for the tunes, and finally, props to Jeff Meese, our master of all things sound. Before we go, if you have any questions, suggestions, comments, insults, whatever, please email me at umontana.edu. Help us spread the word, and be sure to use the hashtag, anewangle, when you do. Thanks a lot. See you next time.